technology is not the problem. Mobile phones are not the problem. They are tools. It's how we use them that matters. What meditation mindfulness do is allow you to rethink how you use these devices because they're extraordinary. We carry supercomputers with us wherever we go. We can do so much with them, but if we're not conscious about how we do it, it can make us miserable. Personally, I'm really excited to share today's episode with you. It features two of my favourite, most inspiring people I've met. Michael, the founder of Calm, and Ali, the founder of Babylon. Both are long on vision. Great big vision. The kind that people will tell you is ridiculous and fantastical and not to bother with. But that's why they are inspiring and brilliant. Because they tell people like that not to reflect their own insecurities on them. They have big dreams and they have the required passion, confidence and self-belief to get them there. That's why, in this episode, you're going to hear from the founder of the world's largest healthcare app, Babylon. Talk to the world's largest mindfulness and meditation app, Calm, about the future of physical and mental health. And who better to share their views on this future than them? I hope you love it as much as I do. So take a deep breath. Be calm. And let's begin. Michael, welcome Hello. to the stage. Thanks. Michael is the founder of uh, Mind Candy, Firebox, and Calm.com, which is the world's biggest mindfulness and meditation app, correct? It is, yes. So how does uh, someone who was once nicknamed the Willy Wonka of British tech <laughs> um, end up creating uh, the world's biggest mindfulness and meditation app? What happened there? Yeah, um, goodness, well... I love um, building businesses. I love taking the crazy ideas bubbling around my head and putting them out there into the marketplace. And being and, called Willy Wonka. And yeah, that was quite fun. And uh, so Moshi was just the, the most incredible adventure. You know, we, we had tens of millions of users around the world. Uh, we did toys and books and magazines and a movie and um, just extraordinary and grew like this. And we thought it was going to continue forever. You know, we were we were winning all these awards. We were in the press all the time. And can you just stop there? Like, take us to, to your peak. What were your... Because I know they're quite staggering, so it's worthwhile sharing. Like, what were your numbers at the time on this journey? Just, like, to give people a sense of that kind of success and over what period? Yeah, so about 60,000 sign-ups a day. We had um, 80 million in total. We had the number one kids' DS game, the number one kids' magazine. In fact, it was the 24th best-selling magazine in the whole country. Um, we had a movie with Universal. Our music album went to number four in the charts. We sold a billion dollars worth of physical product at uh, retail value. So it was it was quite a quite a ride. Um, and as I say, we just thought it would continue. We thought the graphs would continue going up and to the right, and and we'd be the next Disney. And unfortunately, uh, in 2012, that all changed, and it feels like it was almost overnight. Everything was just we could do no wrong. And then the very next day, it was like we could do no right. Moshi went from being the coolest thing in the playground to not so cool. And um, numbers just started collapsing. Revenue, uh, DAU, and we just couldn't quite figure it out. And it was very, very scary. <laughs> and what did you do? Like, What was your reaction as a founder at the point of, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, everyone had probably been talking about you guys as the next big great thing in Britain, full stop. How, as a founder, did that affect you? What did you do over that subsequent year from this moment? 
Yeah, it was it was terrifying. Uh, lots of sleepless nights, as you can imagine. Um, super humbling. And then there's just all the practicalities of having to let people go and reduce the, the team. And, and that's probably the hardest thing we went through. Um, we had to lay off about 200 people. Um, over five different rounds. So you can imagine getting on stage and pouring your heart out and apologizing to the team, but trying to fire up the people who are remaining, mm. having really tough board meetings to try and say how we, things are going to turn around. So yeah, that whole period was was pretty challenging and it, it takes a huge toll. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs in this room, you know what it's like, you're so entwined and invested in your business. It is you. And uh, so you feel like you've let down your friends, your family, your employees, your investors, and really, really kind of internalize all that. And so, yeah, wasn't wasn't much fun. And what did you personally do? Did, I mean, did you uh, take a holiday? Did you start drinking? Did you start <laughs> drinking on a holiday? Did you go with people? Did you go alone? What, what did you actually find was your reaction? Well, I just dug in deep and really, really wanted to try and turn it around. So I had a really good, loyal team that we're just trying to crack this. You know, as an entrepreneur, it's a puzzle. How can we turn things around? But um, as the years kind of ground on, we, we couldn't. And uh, we just found it so, so difficult. So I think I did, and I mentioned this on the podcast, one of the, the best things I ever did was step away from the coalface. You know, when you're there and you just can't disconnect from the business, everything is entwined in it. I, uh, I did something I never had done before and I highly recommend it, which was to go on a, a solo holiday and breathe. <laughs> and Where did you go? I went to um, the Alps, uh, to Austria. I love tennis. So I went to this uh, great place where I played tennis in the morning, went for walks, read lots of books, looked into the science of uh, meditation and mindfulness and started practicing it myself. And it was like this unbelievably bright light bulb went on above my head. And I was like, wow, maybe I don't need to spend the next few years trying to crack this one business. Maybe stepping back and uh, trying something new uh, could be a solution. And had you ever meditated before at this point? I didn't, if I'm honest, I didn't really get it. So Alex Chu, my business partner, had been meditating since he was a teenager. Um, he was... Um, so enlightened. Yeah, so enlightened in Swindon or just outside. Uh, incredible. It's the UK's most, second most enlightened city, I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. His first job was uh, stacking shelves in, in Tesco when he'd go home and meditate and, you know, just amazing. So he'd always be kind of very gently nudging me saying, you know, Michael, try this, uh, try meditation. I'd be like try fucking off. Yeah. Uh, that's not for try me. Try buying one of yeah. my toys and then there won't be a problem. <laughs> exactly. And the reaction a lot of people have. And um, I was quite cynical and there's a lot of baggage with uh, meditation. You know, it, it's people associate it with religion or hippies or just something that they, they don't feel is, is for them. And so I got over that, fortunately. And um, yeah, when the penny dropped, it, it dropped in a major way. And uh, I just realized that um, I love Moshi, I love the entertainment world, but building entertainment businesses is tough. Whether it's video games, whether it's movies, whether it's podcasts, okay. you, um, you have to keep coming up with hits. Thanks for the warning. So, <laughs> well, you guys bit, are doing all right. Bit late. But, uh, <laughs> um, you've got to keep kind of reinventing yourself and, and uh, staying one step ahead. Mm. And this is why I love Calm so much, because it is it feels timeless. You know, this is a fundamental, foundational human emotion that's going to be valuable now, in a year, hopefully in, in 100 years. And uh, it's the kind of thing we feel we can bet the rest of our careers on. So before we um, hand the mic over to Ali, can you give us a rough snapshot of um, the calm journey? 
So you started it in 2012, 2013? Yeah, we bought the domain name calm.com in 2013 and then launched the app in 2013. I'm surprised you had any money left in yeah. your life after buying calm.com. Yeah, it was a little expensive, but we felt it was such a perfect word mm. to build a brand uh, around this. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, Alex moved to California and uh, was there day to day. And I was still uh, working on Mind Candy, but kind of supporting Calm uh, on the side. And we were co-founders. And then um, I got more and more involved uh, over the last few years. And now we're co-founders and co-CEO. So, yeah, just a, a few numbers. Um, it took quite a while to get to this point. There was a lot of resistance. Uh, spoke to over 100 investors in the early days. It's been six years, right? Yeah. yeah. And... Um, Fortunately, got a few investors that put in 1.5 million for our, our seed at the, the very start and uh, grew to about 8 million downloads without spending a penny on marketing. And then we got another 10 million downloads in eight months and we're going to hit the next 10 million in about four months. So just the, the growth is extraordinary. Revenue has been um, tripling year on year. Um, and, uh, yeah, forecasting um, $70, $80 million plus this year with a team of 30 people. So it's a really, really uh, staggeringly interesting business, not only from a commercial side, but just as important is the, the impact it's having on the world and how positive it is. Yeah, and Apple reports, uh, you know, key success metric is if you can have a million dollars revenue per person. You've got two, so you're better than Apple in some, <laughs> in some respects, in some roundabout way of measuring things. Not quite a trillion dollar. But you were Apple's app of the year. Yes, as yeah. well. So that was a, an amazing shock. We we didn't know that was coming at all. Apple works in very mysterious ways, and uh, yeah, we just as the um, older Dodge goes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, and um, yeah, so that was that was hugely exciting and. Uh, what happens if your app of the year... Take, take us through that experience in case anyone this ever happens, but, like, the global app of the year for Apple, do they give you a lot of warning? Do they say, charge up your servers? You're about <laughs> to get a ton more publicity? Or do they just go... Whatever. Like, well, if, it's just happened. A few mysterious things were happening. We'd get the odd um, email from them saying, uh, could you have a look at this artwork, please, and let us know if you approve it. We're like, okay, fine. Mm. And then... um. They said, could we have a chat with you on the phone? And we said, okay. So little things like that were going on. We thought it was going to be an editor's choice or something like that. And then one morning, Thursday morning, I was in a coffee shop in town and uh, a friend said, you should just have a look at the app store. And that was it. That was the first time we heard it. And straight on the phone to Alex, who was um, back in San Francisco. And uh, he woke up in the middle of the night and jumping around. And yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing. What impact does that have numbers-wise to be app of the year yeah so we were um, getting well over 100,000 downloads a day um, after that one of the most interesting things that it did uh, that has it has sustained which we didn't expect was it more than doubled our conversion rate mm -hmm. so I think having that badge of being Apple of the year is such a stamp of authority so people now using calm for the freemium then know it's you know Apple thumbs up mm -hmm. uh, so greatly increased people who then are happy to pay which obviously has huge knock-on effects for the for the commercials of the business and how are you going to feel when Ali and Babylon Health takes your crown and obviously this year becomes app of the year and your yesterday's news? I would be delighted and uh, we'd be high-fiving. Well, on, that note, <laughs> on that note, can we bring up to the stage next year's app of the year winner, Ali Parser from Babylon Health? I Hi, think, Ali. Hi. I think there are more... Hey, dude. Good to see you. I think there are more chances of uh, Tunisia winning the game tonight than we <laughs> becoming up of the year. 
Okay, and just so you know, um, Ali's got our T-shirt in his pocket. He's not part of a gang that you haven't heard of just yet, in case you're worried. Um, no, this is my... So, Ali, your story's uh, slightly different. So, um, yours actually starts um, in... Uh, what I'm, Michael, I know yours starts selling rocks to people. Um, Ali's, yours starts as uh, actually an immigrant coming over from Iran, leaving their family behind as a teenager, age 15, is that right? 16. 16, no, that's right, yeah. OK. Take us through that experience, your early years. I mean, what was that like coming over to England? Did you know how to speak English? Did you know people? So when... I guess I was one of these people when I arrived in England that uh, you would say, how are you? And I would say 10 to 4. <laughs> I, I, I had no, no understanding of language. And I actually... My only knowledge of English and England was, was formed by a single guy his name was uh, Bond, James Bond, and uh, and that's all I understood of England. But I got lucky. And look, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell that says in life you get what he calls desirable difficulties, and that really was a desirable difficulty. Uh, the old adage that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger is very true. And when I look at my life now. Those were hard days, but they were the best days that could have happened. Mm -hmm. And I don't know of any other immigrant who had to go through those things that regrets it. Having said that, we are now facing a crisis in Europe where we are having more teenage immigrants committing suicide because of how hard it is than we have in some cities local people doing it. And when you look at how small those numbers are compared. So it's not easy, uh, but it's fun um, if you get through it. Yeah, and as I understand it, you educated yourself, learned how to do your um, O-levels at the time? Yes. Good. You're not betraying my age. Just a guess. Yeah, so when my mum corrects me that everything's O-levels, I was just making an assumption here as well. But you were uh, uh, learning your O-levels at the time, at the same time learning English. Yes. Correct? Yeah. So how did you do in those exams? Where did you go? And what was your starting point? So it's just, you know, it's okay, very you different if you don't have a support network. But then you, you make it sound too glamorous, right? So I was 16. I arrived in UK. And when you're 16, going to university, if you do two years, one year of English, they said I have to t learn, then do two years of uh, O-levels or GCSEs, and then two years of A-levels. And you kind of do the math and you say, OK, I'll be 21 when I get to university. And when you're 16, 21 sounds ancient, right? You think your life is going to go by. So I locked myself in a room and I taught myself English. I bought myself these A-levels, O-levels book. I passed them through and I got offered Cambridge and UCL. And I was so dumb, if you want, as an outsider. I didn't know Cambridge is a great university. I kind of thought that UCL is in London, big city, Cambridge, tiny little old town. Surely this is better, right? Uh, and, and that is important to me because I, we now support a lot of people who come from comprehensive schools that don't have that mentorship, right? And when you don't know, we all take it for granted that everybody knows Cambridge great. I mean, go outside and ask somebody, name me three colleges in Cambridge. And outside your community of middle class kids, who knows three colleges, right? The name of three colleges. So so I think, I think there is a lot about blessing not knowing. Having said that, UCL was the greatest place I could be. 
I mean, I, I utterly enjoyed it. I spent 10 years of my life at UCL. Yeah, and you started your first business there, pretty much, correct? And I started my first business. And then by, uh, I guess you took a, you, you started a company, you exited it, and then you moved into Goldman Sachs, like any good entrepreneur, correct? Yes. So are you still dusting off the evil? Like, what, <laughs> what's happened since then? So I built a business to pay for my PhD, because, as you know, research doesn't pay. And the bankers who sold it for me per hour of time they spent on the business made an astronomically more money than I did in building the thing. And being an outsider, you kind of always see these guys in really nice suits, and you say, well, what if I could wear those suits, right? So I became a banker for a while. Worst thing I ever did, by the way. I just like to say, I don't think Michael's ever looked at a banker and gone, I want to wear that suit. It's funny you should <laughs> say that. I actually wanted to be an investment banker. That was my dream as a kid. <laughs> I'd watched uh, Wall Street and thought it sounded the most glamorous, exciting world ever. But it's, it's not, is it? <laughs> it actually is very glamorous. <laughs> and it's yeah, you great, You didn't right? do it. I think yeah, we'll listen to well. Ali. Okay, he did it. But, but I tell you, I didn't like it. I didn't like it partly because... I was rubbish at it, right? Um, and I think you need to be... I got promoted all the time because I was an entrepreneur. I got to bank entrepreneurs. They liked me a lot against the usual bankers they were dealing with. So the bank confused the fact that the customers liked me, the clients liked me, with the fact that I knew what I was talking about. And uh, but, but I got lucky because my first child was born when I was uh, 35, 36, which is pretty late in life to have your first child, in, in, at least at the, at the time I taught. And, and I had this like, what am I doing doing what I don't love? So I thought I'm gonna become a dad, right? So I quit everything. I had two weeks of paternity leave. I went back, I saw the head of the banking team and I said, I'm done, I wanna kind of go. And, and six months of Gaga Google later, I decided, okay, I gotta go back, become an entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, but I decided I wanna become an entrepreneur rather than. And just to make sure we're all passively insulting each other together, like a collective, Michael, when did you just have your first child? Yes, uh, we had our first child who's here in the audience, actually. Yeah, uh, being very, very well behaved in Cora. Um, uh, five months, five and a half months ago on Christmas Day. But you're so obviously she's... 35, 36 as well, so... Around that age. Yeah, yeah. naturally. That is yeah. Just, that which, is... which, to clarify, is late in, late in your life. Now, that is so. just about the most brutal, cruel birthday you can give a child, right? Yes. I mean, I birthday or, and Christmas Day is the yeah. same, right? <laughs> no, we're going to have a summer, a summer birthday party for her as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, OK, so... Um, before you founded Babylon Health, uh, you were also building um, the UK's largest private medical healthcare chain. Um, what was your unique insight there, and what was your um, experience leaving it in a nutshell? If you could tell the circle story in a couple of minutes, because we want to tease people to listen to your actual episode, of course, for the full story. So I, I did a knee surgery, a series of knee surgeries. I used to do a lot of sports, and I, I, I had a series of problems with my knee. I did a series of knee surgeries in, in what used to be London's best private hospital. And at best, I would describe it as a two to three star hotel. And I thought, look, if that's the best a thousand pounds a night can buy you, surely you could do a lot better than that. And that's at the time. So we thought, why don't we build our own chain of hospitals? Um, I got 
uh, I got Lehman Brothers and and uh, RBS, two great choices to back me. What year was that? Uh, 2006. Uh, you know, every entrepreneur who tells you they're so brilliant, behind it sits like a lot of like rubbish, right? I mean, I I, I remember. That's quite unlucky, though. Uh, I know, but I remember them doing all sorts of due diligence on us. It never occurred to me that we should do due diligence on them. <laughs> but uh, so they're all gone. But but it gives you with a really good story, right? Because now, when big corporations come to you and say, "I have to do due diligence on you to make sure if I survive, you survive or not," it is significantly more likely if you're doing well today at the start of your journey that they will be the ones who are in trouble than you are. That's just true. I cannot look at a single customer of ours today where I don't believe that the risk on them not doing well five to 10 years from now is significantly more than the risk on us not doing well. Mm. So anyways, so we built Circle with the financial crisis happened. Those two companies fell apart. We had to raise, they had committed 500 million pounds of financing to us, we had to now find that money. And we did 11 rounds of financing, raised something like 250 million pounds in the middle of financial crisis, which um, uh, for those of you who haven't seen me, I used to be six foot four, blue eyes and blonde hair. And he used to look just like Michael. Exactly. I, I, uncanny having this that is me together. before the financial <laughs> crisis. This is actually before and after. <laughs> like Daddy, when, when, when Dan said that the two of us should get together, I said, what, you watch the movie Twin? Like you're getting <laughs> Michael with the, digital, with the genetic garbage in the same room. So anyway, so, and then we raised the money, da, da, da. The company did well. We made one single mistake, which was we had one wrong investor in the group. We had brilliant investors. We had one VC. Any VC guys here tonight? Good. So <laughs> Definitely had, no one brave enough so to admit no it. No one brave enough. We had one VC. Not all VCs are the same, but we had one VC in the group. They, were, they, just, they just panicked, right? The business started doing well. They, sold, they wanted to cash out because... If you're a partner in a small fund, one business doing well, you take the company public, cash out, cashing out means a lot. So people talk about investors becoming really bad when things do badly, but investors could also turn on you when things do well. So we had a major difference. We took the company public. And when we took it public, how many of you have watched the movie uh, Steve Jobs, the Apple movie, when they take it public and a bunch of guys with a suit walk in through the door? And they did. And they acted as if this was their company. And, and to, to, I remember this very well. We tripled our revenue every year, every year, for six, seven, eight years. We took it public. We didn't add a single penny to the revenue, not one penny, because everything became, we need to analyze it, we need to do this, da, da, da. And unlike most of you, I'm pretty old, so life was too short. So I sold my stock, I got out. And I wanted to do Babylon inside that business. And they didn't want to do it. They thought it's a lack of focus. And the issue with entrepreneurs are, and I'm sure we talk about this, is when something gets under your skin, you just have to do it, right? That's why we mortgage our houses. That's why we spend 50 
uh, uh, I was going to say 50 hours a week, but that's not a lot of time, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's that's what we spend 50 to 70 hours a week. And by the way, I don't believe, we can talk about this later, I don't believe in people who say I spend 100 hours a week. I used to work 80, 90 hours a week, 100 hours a week. I tell you, you don't work. You do 40 hours of decent job and 40 of hours of being a zombie, and it's just no good for anybody. You need to have a balance between effective work and the amount of work you have to do. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. What stage is Babylon at at the moment? I mean, I've seen that you've just um, closed a couple of big partnerships. Um, you're growing really fast. Don't let me say all of the accolades on your behalf. Share, can, share you, can you lift up the baby one more time? <laughs> <laughs> That's the stage we're in. <laughs> we, are, we, are, uh, we, are, we are at our babyhood. I genuinely think... And I would, wouldn't I? Because I'm a believer in, in my own nonsense. But I genuinely think we have the making of one of the world's largest companies. And whether we can build it or not is entirely up to us. But if you think about healthcare being a $10 trillion industry, and you think that we spend four to five years figuring out what we do with this, Uh, It has taken us a long time to get to here, but now we have all the building blocks. And, you know, our revenue, we're just about to announce something. We haven't announced it yet. You're live streaming, so I wouldn't announce it. But some of the stuff we are doing right now... There are some zeros in there. 
It's some serious zeros yeah. in there. But more importantly, some serious partners. I mean, we announced a partnership with Tencent that hopefully can take us to a billion people in China if they implement it through WeChat. We're now in every single Samsung phone in the world, not as an app, but as their operating system behind the Samsung phone, starting with UK, hopefully getting everywhere else. But also, we are, as Babylon, we are your primary care provider, or want to be. But if you are your primary care provider, we are also your gateway to healthcare. And the only reason you get your long-term disease management from somebody else is because your primary care providers all across the world are mom and pop shops. And they don't have the capability to organize everything in one go. Now, whether we can pull it off or not, I don't know. But somebody will pull it off. And when they do, they will create an amazing business. And let's hope that that is you, of course. To humanity, it's irrelevant, right? To humanity, it's irrelevant if it's Babylon that makes healthcare accessible, affordable, and put it in the hands of every human being on Earth, or if it's Johnny Smith or uh, Ahmed Khodai. It's the, where did they come from, which part of the world, which part of the thing is irrelevant. What matters is that this is a problem that can be solved. I do not believe we will have a healthcare accessibility and affordability problem, the healthcare solutions we provide today, in 10 years' time. I think somebody will make healthcare, do with healthcare what Google did with information, make it accessible, affordable for everybody anywhere they are. Agreed. And that is the perfect segue into our topic. But if you want to hear more about either of their journeys then Michael's episode is in series one and Ali's is in series two. Um, right, so uh, to discuss the future of uh, healthcare and what it kind of means to be healthy, I mean I think first it might make sense to define what healthy means to each of you. So we have technically speaking a specialist of the mind and technically speaking a specialist of the body although i know that's not what your doctorate is necessarily in but um you work with people in these fields every single day so um michael first what does healthy mean to you i would say if i had to pin down four areas they would be uh sleep getting enough sleep understanding what sleep you need because each of us needs something slightly different uh regular movement um, nutrition and some kind of uh, mindfulness uh, meditation practice. I think those four are the pillars of, of a healthy life. And Ali? Football, number five. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just landed back from Russia, so yes, I am a football fanatic. But the... Just so everyone knows, it was Ali that picked this date, by the way. <laughs> so don't feel too bad for him. It was his choice. No, I feel actually, I um, feel incredibly privileged that people have come uh, tonight. The, the question I got is, to me, what we define as healthcare today, which I get a disease, I'm diagnosed, somebody helps me through my recovery, and sometimes I don't recover and I have a problem for life like diabetes and it needs to be managed, that's not healthcare, right? That's sick care. I got sick, somebody looked after that. If you come to me and say, hey, how do you keep me at the peak of my health? What do I do? I do a health assessment of you. I give you a plan to stay at the peak of your health. I give you coaches if you're a football uh, pro. And then somebody monitors you. And so, as because they're monitoring you, they can predict your health very closely. We're on the verge of being able to do that, right? So I'm wearing this ring. It monitors my whole bunch of things, including my heart rate. My normal natural heart rate is about 60, 
beats per minute. And there are times when it's 67, 65 is when I had a couple of glasses of wine and the body is fighting the tex toxins over the night. But when it gets to 70, 71 over one, two, three nights, you just know like a clockwork that your body is fighting something and it's going to show yourself, right? It's going to be a cold or something coming up. We can predict more nowadays than one can imagine. I think that we're going to move into an era that we will do quite a lot with healthcare, not just sick care. And, and a healthy mind is absolutely everything. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed how we do not think mental health is part of health, right? We almost give it a separate name, mental health, right? I mean, so just. Um, to ask a prickly question on the basis of what you just said. So you asking a prickly yeah, question? I know, who that never happened. Yeah, I know. Um, so well, I was going to reference it to um, an ex-banker, uh, um, but you know the reality is, and it's been discussed in many other forums, the system is not set up to encourage prevention. Yes, the entire system is set up to encourage financial incentives towards healing the sick. So how systemic do you think that problem is and how do you see us moving away as a society? Because that runs a lot deeper than um, a few entrepreneurs with a great vision in mind of how to do things. That is a fundamental way that the world exists today. I, I think you put your hand into a really right place. Uh, our government, for instance, in Britain, just announced a $20 billion increase to the, to, to the NHS, right? Where do you guys think that money is going to go? Right, I tell you, 70% of everything we spend in healthcare goes into salaries. I bet that 60 to 70% of this money will go into increasing uh, people's pay. Right, so all this extra money we spend almost immediately, the moment they're allocated, will be called for and accounted for. There is very little money in the system to do anything new with it, right? It's, it's very, very little. And prevention has very little budget. That's why I'm not a big believer that, that you could create prevention within the existing system because the existing system doesn't have ways of paying for prevention. We don't have a healthcare system. We have a sick care system. Mm. And that's our system globally everywhere. So what, what I like is our deal with the NHS where we can be your GP, right? So you can switch your GP as 4% of people in central London already have done to be Babylon, all paid for by the NHS. But now we need to look after you, hopefully for life, right? Now we have a massive incentive to keep you healthy for a very long period of time. We don't get paid every time you come and see us. We get paid a lump sum to look after you, and that lump sum repeats itself every year. Our interest is to keep you happy so you stay, and our interest is also to keep you healthy so you don't visit your GP too many times, right? So now the incentives are aligned. So I think there is something about the capitated pay. The way the existing system deals with this is by keeping you away from seeing a doctor by giving you a long waiting time because most diseases kind of figure themselves out in two weeks, the little stuff, right? So that's why magically the waiting time is two weeks, right, for most things. But, but reality is if you bring the waiting time, as we have done, to a few minutes, then there is really no incentive for you not to constantly book a consultation unless we figure out better ways for you to get your answer without spending 
30 quid ago with a doctor. And considering somebody your age, we get paid only 30, 40, 50 pounds a year for. You use it three, four times a year, we're kind of in the, in the red. So now incentives will be aligned. And I think that capitated model works really well. But it's under pressure, right? Mm. And well, Ali, you actually mentioned yourself how we classify the idea of mental health as a separate thing entirely. But Michael, do you think that that's an important distinction at the moment because it enables us to have an open conversation about a thing rather than hoping and assuming that it's the right way of framing it? Yeah, absolutely. I think. You know, just a few years ago, mental health was very much in the shadows. It wasn't really something you talked about. Um, and uh, it's just shocking when you think about it. If you have a body, you have physical health. If you have a mind, you have mental health. And thank God this is now starting to change. And uh, I think um, it's super exciting. And to the, to the previous question, I think one of the other really exciting things that are happening in uh, the world of the internet and technology is people are taking responsibility for their own health and uh, learning more about it. Now, if you go online and search symptoms or whatever, you'll find all sorts of crazy stuff. But as all this information starts to get organized and presented in better ways, you know, through apps like Aptive or Calm or others, people now are taking that responsibility. We're still at the early stage, but I think that's hugely exciting for the future of health. So, um, Ali, just to take it back to a conversation that we've had in the past um, where we were discussing, I think, during the podcast episode, um, sapiens. Yes. Um, and, you know, the idea of understanding human history as a way, as a predictor, basically, of understanding the future. How important do you think it is understanding the history of the healthcare system and the history of how... Uh, we as human beings have existed with each other through different healthcare epidemics in terms of understanding what will happen in the next 20, 30 years. I mean, so, do you study history as part of understanding how you as an entrepreneur make that impact in the so future? I'm not sure if I do it as a part of understanding how I work as an entrepreneur, but I love history. So, so it's my passion. I spend a lot of time reading historic books, right? And one of the things that is fascinating is actually we haven't made much progress in longevity of human life, right, uh, throughout our history, right? So Galileo lived to his 80s. I mean, the word uh, Socrates lived pretty long. Like, we've never managed to elongate human life. What we managed to do is stop diseases killing as prematurely, right? For the first time in history, we are on the verge of being able not to be just recipients of the biology that has, was handed to us, but be able to have design of that biology, right? We've now created a worm that lives six times longer than a normal worm. We've created a rat that is 10 times more intelligent than a normal rat. We've created a tomato that does not age, right? You're on this unbelievable crusp where we are not just who we are, but we have what they call intelligent, or it could be dumb design, right? We call it intelligent design, but it could be completely dumb. And, and this is an area that whoever tells you what they know what they're getting into is complete nonsense. We have absolutely no idea what the result of this could be. When somebody as intelligent as Stephen Hawkins says artificial intelligence could be an existential threat to humanity, it is absolutely true, but so could the way we are manipulating our genes, our DNA, everything else we're playing with. I think people forget the l reality of 
unforeseen consequences. Look, I'm a physicist in physics, one of the most famous papers in physics you all know about is called, it was by Lorenz and he said, when a butterfly flaps its wing in Brasilia, there could be a uh, hurricane in Texas. But that's the part of the headline you all remember. The headline had a second half to it, and that was, or it may not. Mm. And, that's, <laughs> and that's just the reality, right? We, there are so many things that can interact in the way they shape our future that no program, no human being, nobody can predict it. And we are unleashing forces. We have absolutely no way to understand how they would unfold. We just hope for the best. Well, I mean, okay, so take this, um, to put it in a different perspective. So if calm fulfills its mission and we have healthier, healthier lives and we're mentally happy and we're stable and we understand who we are as people and we're comfortable and we're not tragically committing suicide in droves like we seem to today in society. And Babylon at the same time fulfills its mission and provides accessible and affordable healthcare across the world, not just places like London, but you know, in wherever, Djibouti, like anywhere in the world, then there's 7.6 billion people on earth today. And the other conversation that we're not having here is obviously the environmental impact on the growth of society, limited resources, plastics, et cetera, et cetera. Now, have you thought about, um, to give a bleaker look, if Elon Musk is uh, unable to send us to Mars and um, Bill Gates is successful in wiping out malaria, how, you know, the extended life of every single citizen here on Earth and you guys being successful in your mission might actually create a bigger problem than you anticipated by overpopulation? which, of course, is not your burden to bear, but I'm going to put it all on you. Shame on you. Yeah. I think human beings are an extraordinary species. We, we've done amazing things. Just look at the progress we've made in the last few decades. And I think we will continue to find very smart, creative solutions to the problems that humanity faces. I think we are given a barrage of negative information through the media about how the world is getting worse and everything is a disaster. That is so not true. There's a brilliant book I'd urge everyone to read called Factfulness, mm. which talks about how across most of the major measures, the world is getting much, much better. Yeah. But we don't hear about it. You know, infant mortality rate, way, way, way down. Uh, life expectancy going up. Um, people around the world in developed nations educated to primary and, and beyond etc 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 so i think the uh the world can support uh a bigger population than we have currently and i think as it grows and we lead more joyful happy purposeful meaning lives uh that is only a, a positive wonderful thing and we will find solutions to the many other problems that will face us as as the world evolves so I'm a huge optimist for, for where things are going. And I think helping physical health and mental health is key to, uh, to that. Ali, do you agree there's never been a better time to be alive? And uh, I guess exactly the same as Michael, or have you potentially got a, a darker perspective? I could, couldn't agree with Michael more. I mean, people talk about the world going wrong in really ridiculous ways, right? I mean... <laughs> There is no wars going on in the world right now. There is a small pockets of war, but the world has never been this peaceful. More children stay alive right now than we lost in the in every year than we lost in the first or the second world war, 
right? If you think about it, right? We used to lose more kids to these things than we did before. People forget we lost more people in the World War to malaria than we did to to all the atrocities of the war, right? And we don't lose people to these things anymore, not in the droves that we used to. Healthcare is not equally distributed, but it is much better everywhere. We're not just in UK, we are in Rwanda also, right? We serve one-third of the population of Rwanda. Two million people are registered on Babylon. This is not... The world is a much, much better place, but it creates its own problems. And as Michael said, we need to learn how to deal with this problem. By the way, the population of the world, there is no research that shows the population of the world is going to grow, right? We, what we know is that as people become wealthier, they have less children. Actually, King Edward, for instance, speaking of history, had 16 children. How many of them lived? Two passed at the age of 20. That's why he had to have 16, right, to make sure two lives. You look at Korea, it used to be average family, used to be eight, now is three, right, uh, as it became richer over time. So I, don't, I think most models show the population of the world will settle somewhere between eight to 11 billion as it comes richer. Now, we cannot predict these things, but also, look, we feed more people per square foot. Imagine if we could feed people the way the Dutch feed their people, right? How many people can we support, right? And not, it, it's a matter of accident in history that we are burning fossil fuel. It's the most stupid thing we're doing. But it's because it's so cheap, we do a lot of it. But again, that's just a 100-year blip, right? All this plastic we are creating and burning is a 50-year blip. Our planet has the ability to clean itself. Do you remember, I mean, again, history, London, you couldn't see yourself 20 meters forward. Look at it. Like we, people, I saw the other day somebody fishing in the Thames, right? I mean, this is one of the most polluted waters in the world. Um, I just came from Russia, where in St. Petersburg, I saw people fishing in the river, right? Again, only five years ago, that river was dead, right? Our planet has a way of regenerating. Humans have a way of regenerating ourselves. I'm, I'm an optimist. Yeah. And let's help those people, the seven and a half billion people on this planet, to live amazing lives. It's extraordinary when you think about it. You touched on it earlier. The number of deaths to suicide. It's it's one mm -hmm. of the biggest killers of, of men um, of certain age. 43,000 deaths to suicide in America alone every year. Mind-blowing. $3 trillion is spent on healthcare in the US, but a tiny fraction of that is on mental health. So I think this is one of the biggest areas that uh, we need to be devoting time and energy and, and research to. And have you both looked into uh, coming into um, prevention, not cures? Um, the effect of nutrition, for example. I mean, I almost feel like we should have a third seat, which is a nutritionist here, to discuss how, you know, it's what you put into your body, really, that makes the most impact and the biggest difference um what assuming well assuming that i'm taking that that spot i'm the nutritionist and i've just said that from some sort of formal authority would you agree with it would you disagree with it and have you had those kind of debates in your fields so look the factors that that affect your life is and, and you get people who become really really ideological about these things right but the truth is this it is neither of those things, but it's all of those things. Your genetics has a huge effect on your life. For instance, on mental health, there's a lot of research that shows you're almost born mm. with, the, with the happiness mm. 
that you're born with. Now, it's like a thermostat that is set. You can bring it up two degrees or down two degrees, but you are who you are. And as a father of three children, I can tell you, my most miserable child has always been miserable. My happiest child has always <laughs> been happy, right? And <laughs> shit, this is being live streamed. I'm talking hypothetical. I'm talking hypothetical. Metaphorical but, children. Uh, yes, metaphorical <laughs> children. Yeah. Uh, but that's just the reality. So, so it's your genetics. It's your biology. It's your uh, food that you eat. It's the activities and the behaviors you do is the environment in which you're in, right? And, and each of those, your genetics and your biology are its own, it's a mystery to us. We know nothing about the brain, right? Everybody who has a problem, we call it personality, borderline personality disorder. I mean, everybody, like, I mean, come on, this must be, you remember the days that cancer used to be called one disease, cancer? Like, we know nothing, nothing about mental health diseases and mental mental illnesses. Michael says 45,000 people uh, uh, lose their lives in the United States. Two years ago was the first year in human history, I think, where we lost more people to suicide than we lost to war, to crime, and to terrorism put together. Mm. How much money goes into defense, yeah, well, terrorism, and crime, how much money goes into mental health? I actually heard uh, an event the other day, someone talking about how the 1800s were all about, you know, the biggest epidemic was, was essentially war and people fighting and it was the biggest loss of life and that sort of period. And then it became diseases, right? It was all cancers and AIDS and everything else that could affect your body. And now it's quite clearly like your own mind. Yeah, yes. that, that is actually the biggest Our own minds epidemic. are turning on us. Our yeah. minds are so on fire in Western societies that it's literally killing ourselves. And it's not just the extreme of suicide, but it's depression and anxiety and all these other uh, mental health issues. Another similar stat to that was shocking. A few years ago was the first year in human history where more people died from overeating than lack of food. Yes. I mean, isn't that extraordinary that yes. we are feeding ourselves to death? Again, our brain's just um, not able to, to find the off switch. And uh, what the hell is going on? This is crazy. <laughs> and obviously, you, you live in mostly in San Francisco now, right? Mm. So how, uh, you, I mean, you spend like a lot of time here, a lot of time there. Yeah. How do you find the two behaviors? What's the, I mean, again, San Francisco is a bit of a pocket of America, so it's maybe difficult to get the full view, but how do you view the different attitudes towards those problems in America versus in England? Yeah, I love both cities, amazing places to live and, and build businesses. San Francisco is very, very tech-centric, um, but very open-minded as well, in a way that England can sometimes be a little bit cynical. So one of the reasons we wanted to base Calm there was because of the, the, the awareness, the consciousness around mindfulness and mental health and, and meditation and, and leaning into that. You know, one of the things that is, is a hot topic of conversation over there is around using um, psychedelic drugs to help with mental health. Mm. And this often takes a big intake of breath because society has demonized these drugs since the 60s and the Nixon war on, on drugs and LSD and everything else is so dangerous. But we're starting to see this extraordinary movement how these compounds could teach us more about the brain than anything else that, that we have done before, how they could potentially rewire brains mm. that are calcified around certain behaviors, the, the ruminations around 
anxiety and depression and so forth, how taking these compounds can almost like a snow globe shake up the brain or reset or refrag a computer. One of the great examples was um, a ski slope and how people with these mental health disorders there were these well-grooved lines that the, the skiers go down again and again and again, and they can't get out of those loops. Taking these compounds in a clinical setting uh, under the right guidance can shake up and reconnect the brain in different ways, almost like a fresh snowfall. So they then have the chance to ski down and make new paths down the mountain. So fascinating. There's a great book um, by Michael Pollan called How to Change Your Mind, mm. which, again, I'd, I'd highly recommend. And I think early days, but, but hugely exciting research going on there. I mean, just on that, you know, it's interesting how uh, medicine and legislation are so um, at odds with each other often. Obviously, in Britain, we had the famous David Nutt, experiment oh, crazy, where isn't it? Yeah. yeah where you know he was literally commissioned to research uh, the impact of illegal drugs and basically came out in favor of all of it so then they just fired him and decommissioned <laughs> the whole thing so like yeah. that's not the answer we were looking for mate see you later which is absurd um interestingly um as i understand it this isn't necessarily in the mental health but on the physical health more but um uh, medical marijuana which, you know, is just being legalised in California. It's legal in Washington, I believe. and it's legal in 20 countries, I think, around the world. Yeah, but yeah. in America, that seems to be a, a growing trend as well, right? State yes. by state. But yeah. then, obviously, you have some very polarised states there. And I, um, I went to a fascinating uh, conversation on medical marijuana. And they were, they were testing it in... Um, I can't remember the name of the state, but it was the most, one of the most Christian states where... Um, you, it's basically the devil's work, as in you're absolutely like a hardcore drug addict, the devil, if you do it. And they had to convince this family to let their child who had multiple sclerosis try uh, medical marijuana as part of the process. And they accepted very begrudgingly and reluctantly, and they've had like phenomenal results. And now they're creating like a whole strain of medical marijuana to treat that type of multiple sclerosis based off this instance where it's a re really great example that that's obviously not a recreational state, right? Mm -hmm. They all hate the idea of drugs. It's a very Christian state, but in a medicinal setting, it's very important. So it's quite interesting how uh, consciousness is sort of slowly getting out of that post-Nixon behavioural attitude. And shocking to think, you know, the number of people that die from alcohol oh, <laughs> and the, the, the impact that has on life and tobacco just on a completely different scale mm. to these, these other compounds. Again, it's one of these examples where society can get something really, really wrong and there are, there are many of them and I think um, mental health is one where we demonise that and now we're starting to shift. So I think this is exciting. Again, another reason why I'm positive and very optimistic for the world. We are starting to rethink these things and the conversations are starting to happen at the very highest level, and I think that's amazing. So, I guess coming into the future, like the stuff that you've seen, and I guess, uh, well, both of you are so immersed in this industry, um, what are the most interesting technological innovations that are happening around healthcare that you see in the next 10 or so years? Like, what's really piqued your interest? And is there anything that if you weren't doing Babylon or weren't doing Calm, you'd be like, I'd be doing that? So we have the, I think, Four to five things are coming together that will change everything about healthcare. One is diagnostics is becoming free. We can now follow your body soon for free the same way we follow your car. We can monitor you all the time. Two is knowledge is already freely available. You have access through the internet, through everything humanity knows about medicine, give or take. The problem is how do you analyze that knowledge and make sense of it, but the knowledge is available. Three, we now have ways of reaching people in a way we never had before. My mobile phone today, whatever it does, it's only 50% of its capability next year. It's uh, 
uh, 3% of its capability 10 years from now. Oh, sorry, five years from now is at 1,000th of its capability 10 years from now. What does something that is 1,000 times more powerful do? And that is assuming we stay on Moore's law and not move to quantum computing. As you know, D-Wave just shipped the first quantum computers that could do 50 times more than the fastest supercomputer can do. And finally, everything we know in intervention in healthcare, everything is melting into air, right? Whether it's electrobiology or synthetic biology, whether it's organ manipulation or uh, laser intervention, whether it is, uh, is DNA reconstruction, organ reconstruction. We are doing things we never thought we could do before. So I think there is no point in forecasting the future, but whether this is 50 years or 500 years, one thing is for sure, we will conquer, there's nothing for sure, but one thing is my belief, we will conquer the whole process of death and aging. We die because we age. And we age, if you look at your cancer cells in your body, they actually are the trick into you know, eternal life because they don't age. They replicate themselves fast and it almost identically, like an old photocopy machine that used to fade, that's what our cells do, that's why we age, but cancer cells don't, right? So if we can replicate the same, and we've done it with tomatoes already where we stopped the aging process, we could get to a place where none of us can imagine where it's going to be. So I think it's futile to predict the future of healthcare. One thing is for sure. We will make healthcare accessible, affordable, put it in the hands of every human being on earth. There is no question in my mind. That healthcare we got today, we will do. The problem is what new challenges would it put in Mental health, I mean, it's just, I mean, the statistics on mental health is unbelievable. 15 people today in Britain have taken their lives. For every one of them, another 10 would have committed suicide and are in hospital trying to recover. 10,000 human beings in Britain, 10,000 are sitting at home with clinical depression and are not leaving their home. And you know what we do with them, Daniel? What do you think we do with you if you have a mental health issue and you're not a middle class kid? What do you think we do with you? Guess. What's your most likely outcome of what we do with you? We put you in jail. Mm. No, we put you in jail. You're right. We, you, you may end up on drugs, you may end up on alcohol, because when your mind is in pain, how do you get out of that pain? Mm -hmm. Constantly, right? You become alcoholic, you may take drugs, you may do something, but it's because you are in pain the whole time, right? So what we do, we criminalize you, we put you in jail, and then we say, oh, 70% of our Jail people have mental health issues. I mean, shame on us. <laughs> yeah, shame on us. 2,000 people last night slept in County Cook Jail in Chicago alone for no other crime but having mental health issues. That's our society that we deal with, guys. That's just the reality of healthcare today. And yeah. you, have, you actually have a feature in Babylon, which is being able to talk to a therapist as well. It's one of the, um, one of the actual functions, which yes. I think is extremely meaningful and obviously that is at the point of needing um, a cure or at least uh, some kind of interaction obviously mindfulness is hopefully the path to um, to being at peace with your inner self 
Well, just, just to answer that question, I, I think healthcare is so exciting at the moment. The combination of health and, and technology, there's so many different areas. Just so you know, Ali yep. said predicting it was futile, so whatever well, you do, <laughs> don't not, predict it. I'm not going to predict it, but He's there's just, just there's a lot of crazy, <laughs> wonderful stuff going on. But to, to build on what Ali said, I think one of the most important areas is, is neuroscience. Everything mm. starts from here. This mm. is the frame, the window in which we see the world. We can make a, a heaven out of hell and a hell out of heaven. And so taking responsibility for our own lives and understanding this and learning about it is so valuable. And as I said earlier, we don't teach it at schools. We're starting to, but we need to lean into this and, and learn about it. So the more you know about your brain, the, the better, the more. And I believe it's a very plastic thing. You can reshape and rewire your brain. And there's so much science showing that you can, instead of being a slave to your mind and yanked around by your emotions, you can take control and become a master of your mind. And that changes everything. And so mindfulness and developing a practice like meditation, as simple as it seems, is so powerful. And there's many other things you can do as well. But um, yeah, personal responsibility, because uh, I think it's going to take a while for governments and, and traditional healthcare to, to catch up with that. But talking about um, the human positive angle, which I'm glad you both take in terms of uh, what we'll achieve as humanity over the next 50, 60 years, one of the things that is virtually impossible to uh, deny is you know, the effect on people citizens in every country affected by artificial intelligence. Even if you were just to use the example of Uber and then eventually self-driving cars, which is probably going to be the fastest revolution of them all because I think that's probably where there's the most data and the most mapped journeys and experiences. And all those Uber drivers that have been given a purpose and a sense of income and reality, um, having that eventually taken away, and a lot of them aren't even familiar with the fact that that will happen, and it seems fairly inevitable. So the question uh, is, when um, the journey for mindfulness and the journey for self-acceptance and the journey for uh, finding that sort of inner peace that is at odds with what's causing people to take their lives, when you take away someone's livelihood and someone's sense of purpose of why they can get up and be productive in the world every day, um, how do you think that that is at odds with this positive view of society? You know, what are, what are we going to do um, mostly, what are you going to do as the entrepreneurs at the heart of this? And obviously, Babylon is so heavily built on artificial intelligence, so I would imagine that you have a perspective there, but then you know, anything that's affected by artificial intelligence there will hopefully be uh, solved by calm as well. So can you both, you know, both answer that um, in, in your own ways? Ali first, sure. So it sounds like we're going to create the problem, you're no. going to solve it. Right? Um, <laughs> Absolutely not. Look, artificial intelligence is one of these things we are unleashing again where we have no idea what it's going to do, right? We, we just don't know what it's going to do. Does that mean we should not unleash it? That's just not right, right? So if you think about healthcare, all this healthcare we talk about, $10 trillion industry, only 50% of the world population have access to it. Bottom line, others don't, right? Of those who do, only five, five billion people in the world, five billion have no access to surgery. Of those who do have access to some kind of healthcare, if you live in India or you live in China and you are in, not in one of the main cities, 80% of the diagnoses you will receive are wrong by a doctor, right? I mean, just think about these things, right? So when we come back, 
and say, so what is the solution? There is no budget in the world that will allow us to create the 5 million doctors we do not have to give it to the people who can't afford it, right? The beauty of artificial intelligence is that when you fix a problem, when you fix a problem, you fix it for good, yeah. right? And it's there and it's in the hands of every human being who can access it. On the 27th of June, which is next week today, next week today, we're doing something really mad, which is we have a, uh, a, a private event, but we will live stream it and you could see it, where we have Royal College of Physicians, Stanford University and Yale University putting our artificial intelligence to test to see whether it can diagnose, diagnose, I, by the way, if FDA is not listening, not diagnose, to advise you on the disease you may have, on the treatment you may require, right, on as well as a doctor can, right, a practicing doctor can. Now imagine you're a mother in Kabul or in, in a village in uh, countries I come from, and you now have access through that mobile phone you have, who can tell you whether what disease your child has and what's the best treatment for that. So when you see that doctor who is not up to date, you can say, well, actually, I know this is the best treatment and this is probably the disease. How wonderfully powerful is that? To stop humanity from achieving and reaching that for what it could go wrong is wrong. Mm. It's, it really is, as my kids call it, the first world problem, right? Because uh, it's, I mean, I, I am so tired of having conversations with these mighty doctors who sit in Harley Street or practice in one of the richest cities in the world and say, yes, but I have this. Well, get your bum to Rwanda, where I practice, where nobody has access to you. And instead of charging 200 pounds an hour or 150,000 pounds of salary from the NHS or whoever else, go and deliver services at prices they can afford, and then give, become mighty. Uh, artificial intelligence has a very, very big role to play to solve the existing current problems. It doesn't mean it cannot create unwanted other challenges. So to discuss those burdens, Michael? <laughs> Well, is um, it something you guys talk about or think about? I mean, you're yeah. in San Francisco. I would imagine it's not that uncommon to have this kind of conversation. So what is the general view at Calm HQ on this topic? Fascinated by AI. My um, business partner in Firebox back in the late 90s, Tom Boardman, did uh, studied artificial intelligence at Birmingham in 95, 96. So yep. been talking about it forever. It's only in the last few years that it's really kind of taken off. Um, I'd agree with what Ali said. There's... The, it, First of all, the, it is out of Pandora's box. That we, can't, we can't go putting it back in. Sure. So let's be intelligent, let's be conscious, let's think carefully about what is happening. And um, I think the pros far outweigh the cons. And just as a slight side from that, talking about your original question, um, I just want to clear something up on mindfulness and, and meditation. It's not about... Um, chilling out or putting on white robes and skipping through fields and thinking everything is going to be fine. I think that's the perception a lot of people have. It's about training your brain and understanding your own mind. And I think a very good analogy that helped me years ago was we go to the gym to, to train our muscles. We lift weights. That resistance builds up our strength. And we meditate to strengthen our mind. It wanders and we bring it back. It wanders, we bring it back. And the more you do that, the stronger your mind comes. And then in everyday life, 
the balance of power shifts from your lizard brain, your amygdala, where you react to everything, more to the prefrontal cortex where you respond. And so going through life, you have the ability, fraction of a second more, to make hopefully what are better decisions in life. And so you can decide to retrain. You can understand complex issues. You can rethink the way someone gave you a funny look or something weird happened that might send you off into a weird negative spiral. So I think that's why it's so important. And um, yeah, that's... uh, I mean, I guess to uh, uh, to quote one of my favourite um, authors, uh, he was a futurist in the 50s called Alvin Toffler. Yes, of course. And he said, uh, the illiterate of the 21st century won't be those who can't uh, read and write. They'll be those who can't learn, unlearn and relearn. Very true. And I think that um, in regards to the artificial intelligence debate, hopefully the idea is, well... Um, how much purpose is there necessarily in stacking shelves when that can be automated, but there's a lot of purpose in training someone to do something that can advance the human race and be involved in that kind of technology revolution. So hopefully there's a lot of retraining opportunities to come. But, but Daniel, I, I mean, let's not, let's not be idealistic about this either, right? The person who, who, f- who does shelves at the moment is now the co-founder of calm yeah but their opportunity unless they're like you their opportunity to retrain fast get into a career again and make a meaningful living out of that is not as significant as you think right so people all talk about well look at agrarian revolution what happened we went from uh 98 of people as workers to two percent right and that wasn't that amazing but the truth is that what did we see after the displacement of those societies we saw the french revolution the russian revolution the chinese revolution we saw displacement of tens of millions of people hundreds of millions of people becoming miserable through a very long period of time until the society after a couple of centuries settled itself the reason people vote for Brexit, I don't know how many of you have gone to some of these mining towns in the north where there is just no hope, right? The reason Trump gets elected is because the aspirational middle classes have become desperational. They just have, it's a desperate situation, right? When your child has no other job or job opportunity than stacking shelves and for which to get minimum wage, what do you do, right? Well, you used to have a good, factory uh, to do. So I think it's sometimes easy for those of us who are incredibly fortunate. We all belong to the top one, two, three, four, five percent of the society. By the virtue that we live in London, we're almost there, right? Mm. Uh, Our poorest are almost in the top 10 percent of the world, right? To, To then make that judgment that the rest of the world is going to retrain itself, I tell you, chances of an Uber driver in India to retraining themselves just like that and become or a or a you know what I mean. But but what then that, that plays into Uber the problem. Six or seven no no years ago, they, they were running the what do you call it tuk tuk. Yes, I <laughs> know. I agree with you. We we don't want to paint too aspirational a picture, but I don't think there has ever been a better opportunity to retrain and rethink. You know, half the world's population now has access to the internet. That's yes. pretty staggering. Yeah. And not everyone is going to be able to create a business and, and uh, become self-employed or a freelancer, but a higher proportion than ever before are. And again, I think the more we can uh, give people opportunities, the, the better. And move. And more people are moving out of abject poverty than ever before. Again, back to the Factfulness book. So um, 
again, positive, but it's not going to happen overnight, obviously. Yes. And I guess it's uh, this, uh, to end on a prickly question, you'll be pleased to know, Ali. You know, to start with Michael, um, calm in itself uh, is almost hypocritical in its existence, potentially, because it lives on your phone. It is an app, first and foremost, but smartphone addiction is so heavily cited with some of the psychological problems that are leading towards suicides, loneliness, et cetera, et cetera. So is that a conversation that you've had um, at Calm HQ about this kind of ironic situation of where Calm lives? Yes, 100%. And what I would say to that is... is fuck off. Uh, <laughs> yeah, storm off, rip my microphone off, <laughs> is that... Look, technology is not the problem. Mobile phones are not the problem. They are tools. It's how we use them that matters. And most of them are dopamine. Most of us are dopamine frazzled zombies scrolling mindlessly and not using these devices and technology in an intelligent way. What meditation and mindfulness do is allow you to rethink how you use these devices because they're extraordinary. We carry supercomputers with us wherever we go. We can do so much with them, but if we're not conscious about how we do it, it can make us miserable. Mm. So um, I would say, I think what we do is uh, something very positive. We use this device in a very positive way, but there are many ways you can use these devices in a negative way. Look at electricity. It can be used to cook your dinner or it can be used to execute someone in a jail um, through electrocution. It is neither good nor bad. It's how we use it that matters. And Ali, just from what you've seen in the, uh, in the healthcare industry, do you think there's an aspect of, you know, for example, biohacking? There's a lot of uh, conversations about how to make us, you know, better, more powerful humans. Got all these superfoods and everything, and then obviously technology on top to enhance things. Got the um, artificially intelligent human being. What do you think about those kind of uh, those kind of thoughts and how dangerous that could be for society? Unfortunately, it's not something Babylon's working on, so it's not as awkward for you as it was for Michael. Well, look, uh, you and I can't talk about biohacking because we already biohacked ourselves. We're wearing glasses, it's right? Just true. I mean, it's just we've done this all our lives. We try to improve mm. as humanity. One of our things was, as Homo sapiens, we figured out how to use tools, right? Yeah. Uh, as other sapiens did uh, too. So. Um, I got no problem with that, right? I mean, I'm older than most of the people in this room. I'm now starting to suffer from a knee problem and a back problem and a hip this and a that. And honestly, if somebody can hack all these pains away, I, I'll take it any day of the week. Um, so if anyone's got any neurofen on them, I'm not one of these purists <laughs> to say it needs to be my body or no body. Like I cycle, uh, like this morning after a. Uh, hour and a half of cycling, I would have given anything to have a biohacked bum that doesn't hurt as much on those. <laughs> so objectively, um, arguably, I believe you are in the company of two outstanding entrepreneurs, and I thoroughly encourage you to listen to each of their episodes because um, the idea behind Secret Leaders is actually to humanize the stories, right? These guys have built and are building incredibly big businesses, but they're human, they're full of faults, they get it wrong along the way, they're willing to talk about it, as is every single guest on Secret Leaders, and uh, that is the core mission, right? Is to share that it is uh, completely achievable and everyone fails regularly, repeatedly, and you guys will both still fail many times into the future until <laughs> you reach the zenith of your powers, I would imagine. So uh, that's it from me. Thank you very much to everyone for coming down and a massive round of applause to our guests.
next week on Secret Leaders. We're like, well, why don't we try to do a celebrity swag bag subscription and, you know, launch with 2,000 units in spring of 2013. Sold out of those 2,000 within two days. Katie and another team member did not think we were going to sell out of 2,000. So they ended up putting all the best products in the first 12 or 1,300 boxes. And we had bloggers post pictures of the box saying, this is the FabFitFun box. Then we had customers complain, well, my box doesn't look like this box. That was co-founders Daniel Brukeem and Katie Ann Rosen Kitchens. Oh, and I thought Dan Murray Serta was a bit long. She's definitely showed me. They're the founders of the West Coast's latest billion-dollar unicorn darling, Fab Fit Fun, the amazing subscription box service full of curated full-size products for wellness, beauty, and lifestyle that's grown to over one million customers and shows no signs of slowing down. They're one of the most exciting companies in America growing right now and have just launched in the UK, so be sure to tune in or you'll miss out. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer Rich Martell, editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative, and stunning visual design by our talented designer Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, secretleaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe. Leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at secretleaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we'll add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.